0: have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It will also be in your bulletin. It can be found on page 961 in your pew Bible. I would encourage you to turn either on your device or in a Bible uh, to this passage because I'm going to read the first eight verses and then I will also refer to some different verses in the chapter and so you might want to take a look at those. Uh, when I reference those verses this morning. Follow along with me as I read God's holy and inspired word. This is God's word taken from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to come through his spirit and to take this passage and to apply it to our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come from lots of different places in this room. Uh, Some of us are full of doubts and full of questions, others full of joy Some full of sadness, some of us are worried and anxious, some this morning feel like failures. We feel that we have failed our families and our spouses and our children and even those in our workplace. Lord, some of us are here this morning because that's what you're supposed to do on Easter. Lord, remind us all this morning that none of us is here by accident. You have brought us here. You have arranged this. And you've brought us here because you want to speak to us. You've got a good word for us this morning. Lord, would you remind us this morning that we do have one thing in common, and that is we are all a bigger mess than we realize. And we all stand desperately in need of your grace. And so would you come and show us that grace and meet us this morning through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, uh, the city of San Francisco rallied to make one little boy's dreams come true. You might be familiar with this story, but the kid was Miles Scott. And he had leukemia. And he had a wish. And his wish was to be Batman. And so this city of San Francisco, thousands of people in San Francisco, along with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, they turned San Francisco, for one day they turned it into Gotham City. It was a smashing success. Miles Scott, Batman, arrives on the scene into the town, and he's fighting off volunteer villains, and he's rescuing cheering citizens. And for one day... He was Batman and this entire city was captivated and enthralled with this amazing act of kindness and love. And someone commenting on the events of this day had this to say about the event. Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed with the sadness in the world, sometimes when I'm overwhelmed with the sadness in my own life, I remember Bat Kid. And I remind myself that this really happened. And it gives me hope. And so my question for you this morning as we begin is when you're overwhelmed by the sadness of the world and perhaps overwhelmed with the sadness in your own life, what do you look to in order to give you hope? You see, in Some way, shape, or form, all of us have experienced sadness in some way, whether directly or indirectly. And what you believe right now in this moment makes all the difference in the world. Your future, um, what you believe about the future matters right now and makes all the difference. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul He calls out to the Corinthians and he calls out to us this morning not to remember Bat Kid as awesome as that story is. And as kind and and the amazing act of kindness that that was. Paul doesn't call us to remember Bat Kid. He calls us to remember something far greater. He calls us to remember Easter. The hope of Easter, the hope of the resurrection. Look at verse one. Paul is reminding them. And he's reminding us that the resurrection really did happen in real space and in real time. And he's saying that really happened. And because that really happened, it gives us hope when we face the sadness and the brokenness in the world in which we live. So we're going to answer three questions this morning in this passage about the resurrection. Three questions about Easter. And the first one is how can we be sure of Easter in the first place? How can we be sure that it really happened? And secondly, we're going to ask what Easter means. Why does it matter? And thirdly, we're going to ask who Easter is for. So how, what, and who this morning. Let's look at number one. How can we be sure? Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And then he says, your faith is in vain. That's a pretty strong statement. And I love that about Christianity because it's all or nothing. The Bible claims that the resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact. And so here's what this means. <clears throat> Excuse me, I can't, I can't quite get my... My throat clear here. Um, Here's what this means. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave. Then there is no Christianity. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave. Nothing else matters. If Jesus didn't walk out of the grave. I've got the weirdest job on the planet. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave. You got dressed up and you look very nice this morning. But you got dressed up for nothing. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave, you fixed a great Sunday brunch with those deviled eggs for nothing. If Jesus did not walk out of the grave, what we are doing here this morning is a complete utter waste of time. Without this day, there is no Christianity. It is foundational. It is the pivot point of all of human history. And whether you are a Christian or not this morning... All of us, and if you haven't, you will, in some way, uh, and at some time, you will be sitting at a stoplight waiting for it to turn green. You'll be on a long road trip and you'll be looking out the window, or you'll be lying awake at bed at 2 a.m., or you'll be in a college classroom and it will occur to you how do I know this is real? How do I know that the resurrection really happened? How do I know that these aren't just stories that someone made up in order to make us feel better about ourselves? We could spend a lot of time on talking about the evidences for the resurrection. I wish I had more time, but let me just talk about a few reasons how you know. Look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. You see the words there over and over. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared over and over. And you see, Paul is actually building his case there with a variety of eyewitnesses. Everyone agrees that this was written 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's important because that means that the eyewitnesses would have still been alive. Look at verse six specifically. He says that more than 500 people. Saw him. Think about that. Not one or two. Okay, if one or two people saw him, uh, they could buy into this weird delusion and keep the company line and things would work out. No, 500 witnesses, not a chance. Not a chance. And notice what Paul says. It almost looks like a throwaway line. Verse 6. Most of whom were still alive. You see what Paul's doing? I love this. He says, I dare you. I dare you. You don't believe me? Go ask them. Go ask the people that saw him. I will give you their address because they're still alive. I dare you to go ask them. You see, that's really powerful. Because what Paul is doing is he's putting his credibility, and not only his credibility, but the incredibility of his entire ministry on the line. But perhaps the biggest reason to consider the resurrection, I think, in my opinion, is verse seven. And I've heard people say that verse seven is the reason why they're why they are a Christian. Look at verse seven. Again, it almost it's very subtle and easy to miss. He appeared to James. This is the most astounding thing in this passage. Who was James? Well, James was the little brother of Jesus. Think about that with me. He grew up with Jesus. He knew Jesus better than anybody. The houses were small back then, they probably shared a room. But seven, several years later, Jesus decided to put up his carpentry tools and start his ministry. And he went around and he said, I am God in the flesh, I am the Christ. And he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near. And everyone in his family except for his mother thought Jesus was a complete lunatic. John chapter 7. His family thought he was completely nuts and had uh, lost his mind. And then Jesus is resurrected. And he appeared to James. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine being a fly on the wall and listening to that conversation? And what's amazing, in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, it says that all the disciples, Jesus had had risen and was ascended at this point, and they're all gathering in a room to pray. And it says that Jesus' mother Mary was with them and his brothers. He went from being his brother and from him thinking he was a lunatic, to now, James is actually on his knees praying to him as God. How do you explain that? Well, you explain it because he saw him alive, and he believed. So much so that he went on and wrote the book of James, and in James chapter 1, verse 1, you know what he says? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, He grew up with Jesus and now he's calling him God. You explain that. Why? Because Jesus is alive and he realized he was God. So much so that, you know, James became a pillar in the early church and ended up giving his life. He was martyred for following Jesus. Hundreds of people saw Jesus alive and it changed their life. And they were willing to die And in around three to four hundred years, Christianity toppled and influenced the Roman Empire. And you know what? No one disputes that. Not even Newsweek. 2005, there was an article around Easter looking at the birth of the early church. And the article concludes that most likely the resurrection of Christ happened because there's no other historical alternate explanation for the birth of the early church and the reason why it was able to overthrow the Roman Empire and influence in 300 years. The only reason is that they saw Jesus alive. So what? Two points of application. One, this morning, if you're convinced, and the other, if you're unconvinced. First, if you're unconvinced of the resurrection in Christianity, I would just simply say this. If you want to have academic integrity... The burden of proof, and often people think this, the assumption is that the entire burden of proof is on the Christian. To prove that the resurrection is true. And I would beg to differ. The burden of proof is not entirely on the Christian because you need to realize that you also, by denying the resurrection, are making a faith commitment. See, it's not simply enough for you to dismiss the resurrection out of hand. You have to come up with an historical, reasonable, alternate explanation to the birth of the early church and the way it was able to take off so rapidly, like it did. Secondly, for the convinced, if you're here this morning and you believe in Christianity, I want you to know this you can have real confidence in your Bible. The resurrection of Jesus is true. And it's historical. And it happened in real space and in real time. And so Christianity, again, despite what people might say, it is not a blind leap of faith. It's very reasonable. But you also need to realize this. If you believe the resurrection is true, it changes absolutely everything in your life. Have you owned this event? The resurrection, have you owned it in your life? Or is Jesus simply an add-on? Friends, you don't make someone who rises from the dead an add-on in your life. C.S. Lewis says says it this way. Jesus is either of utmost importance or he's of no importance. But one thing Jesus cannot be is of some importance. And what he's saying is that if Jesus rose from the dead, you can't be apathetic about Jesus. If a dead man rises, it also means this. That all your hang-ups with the Bible become secondary issues. Problems of evil and creation and what Jesus says about sexuality. If Jesus is who he says he is and he rises from the dead, the reality of who Jesus is informs everything else in your life. Because when a dead man rises, you have to submit to him. You have to obey him. You have to listen to what he says. And if he didn't, then let's pack it up and go home. Secondly, what does Easter mean? Some of you this morning, you believe in the resurrection. That's not a struggle for you. But you're here this morning and your struggle is, what does it mean? Like, why does this really matter? What does this have to do? What does Easter have to do with Tuesday afternoon when the good meal has been eaten and the candy's almost gone and you're back at work and Easter is a distant memory? That's your question. And let me just say this, friends, Easter gives all of us, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it gives you a real and living hope. Look at verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What in the world does that mean? Well, Paul is drawing drawing an analogy between the resurrection of Jesus and this Old Testament ritual called the first fruits. And basically what he means is that the first fruits were the first portion of the harvest. They were the first portion of the crop. And they guaranteed the entire harvest, the rest of the harvest, was to come. And so Jesus here, the resurrection, guaranteed, this is what Paul is saying, the rest of the harvest. It guaranteed something much greater. Who's the rest of the harvest? It's you. If you're a Christian this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, his resurrection guarantees your your resurrection. But it also means something. So much more. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. And that means it was a guarantee of he would one day usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So it was a guarantee of heaven for you. Of ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. And when the Bible talks about heaven, you need to know that it doesn't talk about heaven as somewhere up in the, up in the clouds. Jesus is one day going to bring heaven down here to you. This is the world that God made. And heaven is coming down to you. And God is going to, Jesus is going to totally remake this earth and renew it. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus says, I am going to make all things new. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to make all new things. That's important. Jesus is not going to completely come up with a different world. He's going to come down to this world. And he's going to take away the curse. And he's going to take away the brokenness. And he's going to transform it and make it into a new creation. What does that mean? Well, it means this. And I don't know about you, but this gets me really excited. But heaven, the new heavens and new earth is very physical, We often don't think of it that way. We think of it spiritual, of us floating around in the clouds playing harps. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me. It's very physical. And you see this in verses 35 through the end of the chapter. You can look as he's talking about our new bodies. And Jesus being the first fruit of our resurrection means that We can look at the body of Jesus and get a glimpse of what we are going to be like and what it's going to be like when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus' body was very physical, right? Could you touch Jesus' body? Yeah, remember he presented himself to the disciples and he told Thomas, which I'll talk about more later. He says, touch me. You don't believe it's me? Touch me. He could eat. Remember in John chapter twenty one, he's on the shore. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The resurrecting Jesus and he's coming, he's sharing a meal with his disciples. And Paul is so overwhelmed by this thought of our bodies and being able and it being physical that the only way he can describe it is that he can only talk about it in the negative. If you look at thirty five and following, he says it won't perish, it won't be weak. Friends, your body, this is where this thing is heading if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your body will no longer be weak. You will no longer experience pain. You will no longer get the flu or strep throat or disease. Or you will no longer have nervous breakdowns and there won't be sickness and cancer and chemo and miscarriages and medication and depression Because your body, this is what Jesus is doing in the resurrection. He is promising that your body will one day, physically, this body. Will one day work the way it's supposed to. You see, the resurrection not only promises a new body, but it promises. So much more than that, it promises a day in which injustice will be made right in the world. It promises a day when. Your broken relationships. And think about the broken relationships. Some of you, even within your own family, when those things will be made right and when death will be no more. God says, I am going to wipe away every tear. I'm going to take away all the pain. I'm going to take away all the mourning and crying. I've been at this church a little over a year. And in my first year, I did three funerals, this was my first funeral because I was in campus ministry before and uh, thankfully, I never had to bury a student. And as I've done funerals and been around funerals in this first year, you hear one thing over and over and over again from the family. Jason, how in the world do people do it without Jesus? How do you bury someone you love and have been married to for 50 years. If you don't have Jesus and you don't have the hope of the resurrection, how in the world do you do it? Some of you have been up close and personal with death. You know death. Some of you have lost children, and it changed the whole course of your life. Some of you have lost your spouse of many years. Some of you have buried your parents, you have lost your siblings. You see, everyone in this room in some way, shape, or form has experienced sadness. Others of us have done things we deeply regret. Things we're very ashamed of and cannot shake and things that we cannot undo. Things that we did or have been done to us. And the resurrection means that one day all of the things that you can't shake and won't go away will be gone. Isn't that good news? Those things will be healed. And that's why, if you look at the end of the chapter, that is why Paul can taunt death. I love that. Paul looks at death in the eye and says, bring it. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? How can he say that? Because he's so convinced that Jesus is alive because he saw him on the road to Damascus that he can look death in the face and say, I'm not scared of you anymore. Your days are numbered you do not have the last words. Friends, that's only possible if you believe Jesus is alive. Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you know the name. She's the founder of the International Disability Center. And when she was 17, she had a terrible accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down. She's a Christian, and she uh, speaks all over the world, and she's had several articles written about her. And there's this one particular article... Uh, where this reporter went and needed to spend some days with her just to get to know her and interview her and kind of see what her daily routine was like. And so this reporter's following following her around, and uh, almost every day she would go down to this horse barn, and she would watch people ride horses. And so she goes down and she's watching these people ride horses just with delight and joy on her face, And finally, the reporter looks at her and says, what in the world? Why do you do this? This has got to be torture for you. You see, this is one of the things that she loved to do before she was paralyzed. This has got to be torture, the reporter said to her, because you know you'll never ride again. You know what she says? As She she goes, I go and I watch people ride horses because I don't want to forget how. That sounds crazy at first. How in the world can she say that? You know why she can say that? It's because she has a living hope. She has a hope in the future. And and, and her hope in the future shapes the way she lives on Tuesday afternoon. And it's not a belief that I'm going to be on a cloud playing a harp. It's so much better than that. It's hope that Jesus is going to usher in And this is true because of his resurrection. He's going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And one day she is going to do and get to do the things that she loves again. Which is ride horses. My question for you, is your resurrection that big? Is your hope for the future that big? Do you have hope like that? Because if you have hope like that. Friends, that will give you the strength to look anything you face in life right square in the face and move forward. A living hope. Thirdly, who is Easter for? Man, you hear this news, this good news of a new heaven and new earth, and you think, surely this is just for the good people. The people that have done everything right. Well, thankfully, that's not the case. Look at verse 5. He appeared also to Cephas. Who is Cephas? That's Peter. And this is no accident that Paul points out Peter here. Who is Peter? He's one of the disciples. And remember, he was the the disciple that thought he was better than everyone else. Thought he was more committed than all the other disciples. And he said, Jesus, they're going to sell you out. I won't. I will go to the mat for you and die for you. And then it came time after Jesus had died. And, got, and, and, and went to the cross on that night. Remember, he was confronted three times. Do you know Jesus? And then emphatically, he says, I don't even know who you're talking about. One of the greatest failures in church history. Peter. The rooster crowed. and You know what Peter did? He wept. He broke down, and he wept, and he was in complete despair. And then in John chapter 21, the disciples are fishing, And they look, and there's another thing. They recognize Jesus, so you're going to recognize each other in the new heavens and new earth. They see Jesus on the shore, and they say, this is Jesus. It took them a minute, but they realized it was Jesus. And Peter swims to him as fast as he can, and he gets up to the shore, and he's probably thinking, Jesus is going to let me have it. And Jesus, in the midst of Peter's unshakable failure, says, sit down and let's eat breakfast. Let's share a meal together. And he totally restores and forgives Peter for what he had done. And that moment changed Peter's life. Peter went on to be a pillar in the early church. Peter died with Jesus on his lips. And what history tells us was crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Why? Well, because he saw the risen Jesus. He saw the risen Lord and he knew that God's grace was for him. Friends, if Peter, if God's grace was enough for Peter, God's grace is enough for you. Did you know at the end of time there's going to be a resurrection party? It's called the great wedding feast of the Lamb when God's going to raise us all up. And we are going to have the biggest resurrection party that this world has ever seen. It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And let me tell you this. It's not for distinguished guests. It's for sinners. It's for broken people. It's for people who have unshakable failure like Peter. It's for people that need forgiveness and need mercy. It's for beggars. For people like the thief on the cross and Peter and Paul who are sitting at that table and we will be sitting with them. And every single one of us will be sitting at that table and it will be for one reason and that is grace alone. I heard a story recently about a child that was adopted. This child had been in and out of foster the foster system and in one home after another, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until one family decided that they would adopt this young boy. Things started out really well, and then things took a turn. The boy started being very destructive, and had all these outbursts of anger, and even violent at times, putting holes in the walls. The parents are exhausted. They have no idea what has happened. It was like a, a switch had been flipped. And after one particular day of lashing out, the young boy was in his room and the father went up to try to calm him down and the dad walks in and this young boy is under the bed weeping. The father gets down and lays down and looks under the bed and says, what are you so afraid of? And the young boy, his adopted son, looks at him and says, when are you going to send me back? And the father actually crawls under the bed with him and puts his arm around his adopted son and says, I'm never sending you back. You're you're never going back. You're our son. This is forever. Friends, in the midst of our unshakable failure, we often think Jesus is tired of us and is going to send us back. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is never going to send you back. The resurrection is proof that you belong to him, that this is forever. And then the question is, okay, how do we know that? John 20. John chapter 20. There's something really interesting about John chapter 20. Jesus in his resurrected body goes before Thomas. And Thomas doesn't believe and he holds his hands out. And he says, put your finger in the scars on my hand. And then he grabs Thomas's hand and he puts it up to his side and says, I want you to feel my side. And some of you are thinking, like I thought, wait a minute. Scars? Resurrected body? Scars and resurrected body don't go together. Well, they do if you're Jesus. You see, the only one that will stay eternally scarred is Jesus. Jesus keeps his wounds. So that you would lose yours. Jesus keeps the marks of his pain. So that you will lose your pain. And when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will be resurrected at the end of time. On that final day. You will be made perfect. You will have no scars. You will have no wounds. You will have no pain. No sin. No sadness. Why? Because They all fell on Jesus. Jesus' resurrected body will still be scarred as a picture of his great love for you. That is why in Revelation chapter 5, when John is in the throne room, it says he looked, and what did he see? A lamb who was slain. That's how much Jesus loves his people. That's how you know it's forever. Because if God didn't spare His only Son, He will not. How how will He not also graciously give you all things? So, what's your unshakable failure this morning? What's the thing that you can't shake? Sexual sin, a broken or a failed marriage, your failed parenting, the secret that you've never told anyone, the things that you've done that you wish you hadn't. Friends, the resurrected Jesus delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy. See, the resurrection, who's it for? It's for real sinners like us. And so my question is, will you come this morning? He is risen. Will you come to the risen Lord Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning that you conquered death. The grave could not hold you and one day you will rise and you will make all the wrongs in the world right and all the sad things in the world will come untrue. Thank you for that incredible hope and promise. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that you would open up their eyes and give them faith. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And for those this morning that are sad, And that are missing their loved ones this morning. Would you give them great hope? Would you give them great comfort in the resurrection? In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.